Thank you, Justin. That is a passion for playing right there. Well, happy Sabbath to you. Good to see you. We got ourselves a wonderful day. And uh, when I first walked out today, I thought, this is a, this is a good sign. I'm going to survive the day. <laughs> I kind of put myself out on a limb. I, I've given this presentation probably a dozen times or so. And this is the first time it's up there um, on a PowerPoint or whatever they call it now. And, and uh, so we'll see how disciplined I can be. Let's, uh, let's ask the Lord's blessing, please. Father in heaven, thank you for getting us here today. And uh, we just want to ask you to reveal to us, take up your son before us, help us to comprehend and understand and see him. And behold him when he's lifted up before us. The opportunity comes our way. program, a science program uh, recently, I don't know, a couple years ago, and I can't remember exactly what was said, but I remember the idea that there is enough energy in one uh, uh, mature tree, oak tree, to, uh, to light, to bring energy to the, to the United States for a month. That's a lot. You know, the most industrialized nation in the, in the history of the world, and you can, one, one tree has enough potential energy. The idea is tapping into that energy. And the, the cross has been invested by heaven with that kind of energy. There's power inside and understanding. There's a power in grasping what it, it means. Uh, and a power on the human heart to, uh, to bring about something we could only dream of. So let's see if I can hit the right button here. Uh, the, um, so Paul writes about, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God and the salvation. The power of God. Um, and he's, and, and I, I don't want to know anything else among you except Christ and Him crucified, where the world is crucified to me and I to the world, that the world has lost its, its, its control over me. Um, 
that world that's inside us too. Uh, and that was Paul's thing. It was the cross. Um, and we can kind of understand maybe what he meant when he talked about a glory only. We glory in stuff. And, and maybe, that, maybe as we think about that, we can understand maybe the passion he had. So what's your thing? Uh, you know, I, I remember the first cool car I had. <laughs> it was, it was uh, I think it was about 1980. It was just starting college. And I got my hands on a 1968 Cutlass. Yeah, come on. Ragtop. All right? I had myself a convertible. And uh, I had those shocks in the back, had it rolled up nice in the back, you know? And it had a, a 75 rebuilt Cutlass Supreme engine. And uh, I was cool. I wasn't cool before, but I was cool now, you know? And I did glory in that car. I, you know, I, I, I took that car everywhere, you know, and I wanted people to know that that was my car. And uh, so we keep it, uh, you know, we, we, we pay attention to it. We, we focus on it. Uh, for some, it's their homes. I don't know if you can see that up in the right-hand corner, but that's a mountain house there. Uh, we, we glory in our residences. Uh, or in art, fine art, you know. I mean, there's... There's just something beautiful about art, you know, all in, in many forms, right? Uh, some might recognize this guy in red. Is that LeBron? Is he dunking on LeBron? That might be, I don't know. All right. Uh, but we, we glory in our, in our heroes, our, our uh, celebrities. We connect to them, you know, or our career. Sometimes a career is what we glory in, or fashion, or relationships, or cosmetics, you know, the multi-billion dollar business, and this obsession with this glorying in ourselves, you know. Um, or music, you know. Uh, I wish that, I wish that was, that was, uh, it was a better focus for you, but, but sometimes, I mean, music, I mean, what, I mean, if there's any universal thing that we all glory in, it certainly is music. We, could, we got a taste of it here today, the impact it could have on the psyche of uh, emotional uh, experience that we have. Uh, and so these are the passions. These are the things we glory in. And think about the things that grab you, and this is what Paul was talking about, that he glories in the cross. So here's that text here, and, and I don't know how well this is going to serve you here, having this up here, how well you can see it, but Galatians 6.14, God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. It, the impact it had on him was profound. Um, it wasn't just kind of a thing that he got involved in, it became his life. He gloried in it. And uh, he repeats the same theme here in 1 Corinthians. Uh, For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul had gone to Athens to preach the gospel. And he, his, he decided to use a, a worldly model of philosophy uh, and anecdotal 
examples to uh, try to convince the, the Greeks of the excellency of Christ, and he failed miserably. He didn't preach the cross, and it, it, it left a lasting impression on him, and, and, and he writes here in 1 Corinthians, I determined not to know anything. This is it. Now, the Apostle Paul was, was he a strange man? Was he out of his mind? Was he a fanatic? I mean, think about this. He had, every, he had political influence, religious influence, economic influence. He, was a, he had everything going to the rising star. He was a Roman citizen, which was a big deal. And he counted it all, he says in Philippians 3, as dung. It was nothing. He'd give it, it means nothing to him. How does, a, how does somebody get to this place? How do you get to where you have all that and then you just want to throw it away? Is that a fanatic? I mean, I, I've heard sermons on the cross and, and I've gone to evangelistic series. I've spoken at evangelistic series. I've... I've, I've prayed and everything. Why am I having a hard time finding that? Why is it not impacting me like that? What is it we might be missing? Well, let's start in a, in a little journey here in a brief time we have today, starting in chapter uh, 5 of Revelation. And I want to have a few texts here on the screen if you want to follow along, uh, all the better in your own Bible. I'm going to be reading from the New King James. Chapter 5 starts, there's, the, there's uh, one who is at, on the throne, and on his right hand is a scroll. And the, the scroll has seven seals. Now, you've, we just studied Revelation Sabbath School not too far Long ago, you may remember some of this. And, and a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and take off its seals? And uh, nobody is found. Nobody in heaven, nobody on earth, nobody under the earth. Nobody is, is qualified to open the scroll. And John begins to weep. Because the whole idea here is it's the vindication of God, you see. That's what this is all about. And there's nobody to do so. But then one of the elders comes and says, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed, and he is able to open the seals. So there's this lion, right? Right? There you are. And then we get to verse 6. Uh, the theme of Revelation is the Lamb. I, it's referred to not less than seven, 27 times. My Andrew study Bible says 28. Probably right. I found 27. Uh, there's a focus here on the Lamb. And that's what the, the book of Revelation is about. And so John is told about this lion. 
And then he looks and he says, Behold, I looked, and there stood a what? A lamb as it had been slain. And this lamb is described as having seven horns. And a horn is a, a symbol of, of, of authority and uh, power. So you have this, it's told about this lion, but then he looks and he sees a lamb that's been slain, which obviously this lamb doesn't have any power, but then it has seven horns. In other words, this person has enormous authority and power and has laid down his life. And it's a, it's, it's, it's a paradox, you see, as he had been slain. There's something about this lamb that grabs John's attention and he wants us to see it because he repeats the theme here. Uh, the, uh, there's the, the, the uh, living creatures, the, four, the elders, they, they, they're, they're excited about this. They sing a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe, tongue, and people, and nation, which will come up to, again, in the three angels' messages. And then we have the... They look, and they heard a voice of many angels, and the angels are now saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. So there's this focus, that, like a laser beam, that John is driving us to, that heaven is driving us to, uh, of the, this lamb that was slain, bringing the cross into focus. So, uh, so the gospel, the everlasting gospel, is the message of the slain lamb, and it's a, one that, it's, a, it's a message that has power, we find here in verse 12. And we, then we get back to Paul here, where he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God to salvation. And repeats the idea here in 1 Corinthians, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Salvation. There's something built in his that that is there uh, to be understood. Now, on the cross, Jesus had a perfect sacrifice. The atonement was completed. Jesus does not have to die again. But in another sense, the, the atonement is still unresolved. Spirit of Prophecy talks about something called the final atonement. There is still more, there still exists misunderstandings about God, alienation, even hatred that exists in the world, that exists even in our own hearts, if we're honest. There's doubts, there's insecurities that, 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 are, that need to be healed, that need to be, that need to be uh, recti rectified, need to be resolved. And this is what the cross is designed to do in our hearts. The devil has set up a, a, a plan of meshes, of nets, of, to trap us in all kinds of mindsets and addictions, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. 
to, to the, trying to get us to the point where we can't even begin to comprehend what the gospel is. But there's a gospel message more powerful than all the demons of hell. Amen? And that's this everlasting gospel message. And the, the, uh, the fruit of this message is found in chapter 14 of Revelation. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. There is something that happens in the human heart. It's not a works program. It's not, am I doing everything just right? It's, a, it's an intimacy. It's a connection. It's an understanding of what it took to save, you, save us, what God went, what Christ went through to the cost of what our salvation really is and what the cross meant to him. So how does this message of the cross exercise such power over the human heart, a will, the willing human sinful heart? And what exactly is the death of the cross that was mentioned in our Sabbath school, in our uh, uh, scripture reading today? You know what the death of the cross is, right? You get your, you get your, they nail your hands and your feet. They, 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 they might beat you up a little bit prior to teach you a lesson. Then they throw you up on this, on this piece of wood and there's splinters on your back and you get headaches and it's awful, right? I wouldn't want it even for five minutes, would you? But that is not the death of the cross. The death of the cross is way past any physical ex experience. In fact, the physical experience is only, is only an outward expression of what really the death of the cross is. When you watch movies like The Passion, they emphasize the physical abuse of Christ. And he got, was he abused? Beyond what we can describe, in fact, there's a statement that says when he was in prison, in the Roman prison, what happened to him is unspeakable. Now, there's been a lot of abuse in the world. Does Christ understand you? Yeah, he understands abuse. He was, he was, these are the people that, in, in, in the Jews, these were the Romans that they were doing it in prison, but the Jews were supposed to protect him. They were his people. His own family rejected him. He was abused at every level you can think of. Every level. The death of, if to understand the death of the cross, we have to turn to Galatians. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. That's disobedience to the law is the curse. He has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written. And Paul goes on to quote the great Moses here in Deuteronomy chapter 21. And uh, essentially what Moses says is, is if, you're, if you're convicted of a capital case and you're sentenced to die and the judge sentences you to have your head cut off or they throw a spear through your body or they even stone you, you can be happy 
You can go back to your prison cell. You can get on your knees. You can repent. You can pray for God to forgive you. And he will hear you. And he will raise you up in the resurrection. But if the judge sentences you to be hung on a tree, you've had it. You cannot pray. God will not hear you. You've been thrown on the steps where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. There's no hope. Cursed of God, Moses said. And everyone believed it. But was Jesus above this? Did Jesus know better? Just like, yeah, yeah, I know, I know, but, you know, I kind of know that's, that's not really not true. Well, to find out, let's turn to Psalm 22. Psalm 22. If there had been a stenographer present, do we still use stenographers? I don't know. If there had been one present at the crucifixion that recorded not only every word but every thought on the heart of Jesus as he hung on the cross. That stenographer would give us Psalm 22. Because that's what it is. It's a prayer. And if you're ever wondering, what is the faith of Jesus? You might have some clues reading this. Starts out with this great cry of dereliction in verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, if Jesus was like, no, that's, it, 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 Jesus is not an actor. Uh, you, know, uh, you know, he would have memorized script. And, you know, he's on the cross. He goes, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, so what do I say? Oh, that's right, right, right. My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? And he cries some crocodile tears. He knows that he really hasn't, but he says it anyway. No. Jesus is 100% honest. He felt forsaken. And he doesn't say, you know, why, why have my, my, my disciples run away and abandoned me and my own mother has fallen to pieces in front of me and and, and why has na- the nation rejected me? He doesn't ask that. He asks, God, why have you forsaken me? And he said these words in Aramaic, Matthew records, and Mark, I believe, which I never really grasped until recently. Aramaic is the language of his childhood. We just had a celebration of D-Day. You probably, probably pretty hard to miss. Seventy-five years, a lot of news and shows, and and uh, you know, kind of revisiting that. And uh, you know, maybe you've heard stories about this as well. You know, uh, the beating that took uh, that took place on Omaha Beach. 
young men. And the same thing took place with the Marines in Iwo Jima or, or you know, you, you go on anywhere you want to go, and, and not just Americans, right? But uh, the stories, the, the horror that went on there, and some of these young men on the beach, half of them blown off, half their body blown to pieces. And they're, they're, the horror and terror of the moment as they cry out to their mother. In their mind, their, their, their psycho-emotional response is, is to find some security. And they go back into their childhood crying for mom. Here's the Son of God hanging on the cross, speaking in Aramaic. It's significant. He is beginning to feel what has been coming to him since Gethsemane, the emotional isolation, the psychological warfare going on for you and me. Verse 1 continues, Why are you so far from helping me? And for the words of my groaning. The King James uses the word roaring. The Hebrew word is the word that is used to describe the howl of an animal caught in a trap. It's darkness. Darkness comes upon the land. The Son of God is hanging in the darkness and he cries out like a wild animal. This is not an actor with a memorized script. This is not vicarious. This is real. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now in chapter 17 of Acts. I just want to I want to sidebar this real quick here and read this to you. If I can do it quick, maybe. Where is it? Acts chapter 17. And uh Verse, I'm sorry, this came to my mind, so I've got to do it. Verse 26. Acts chapter 17, verse 26. And God hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on the face of the earth, and has determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation, that they should seek the Lord if happily they might feel for him. The new modern translations use the word grope. That's not a real good word to use these days. But it's describing a connection, an intimacy God is desiring that we feel for him, that we connect with him. 
that we see him on the beach crying for his mom. Would that have an impact on you if you were there? Would you never forget it? Is there power in the blood? Perhaps. That they shall seek the Lord, that they might feel after him and find him. Find him where? On his cross. Though he be not far from every one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. Can you feel for him here? Do you see him? And the words of his roaring. Verse 2 Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear. And in the night season, and I'm not silent. Verse 3, you are, but you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. In other words, you are elected. You have been, you've, you've been, you, we've chosen you. Now why don't you hear my prayer? Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were delivered. They trusted you and were not ashamed or confounded. But here I am. Confounded. Why do you not hear my prayer? Verse 6. But I am a worm and no man. There's a hymn, a poem, written by Isaac Watts. It's number 163 in our hymnal. At the cross. Have you heard it? Isaac, and we do not sing that hymn the way Isaac Watts wrote it. Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die, would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? We're not worms, we're somebody. So we change the words to the hymn, for such a one is I. But I don't mind singing the hymn like Isaac Watts wrote it, because here the Son of God calls himself a worm. And no man, a reproach of men, and despised by the people. A, a crucifixion is like a carnival. If If ever, anyone who hangs on a tree is a curse of God, you do not want to show any sympathy for the victim. You don't want to be at cross purposes with God, do you? You want to be in line to show sympathy or to say you're disagreeing. That's the way the people thought, you see? So the kids got home, home got home early from school and brought their rotten tomatoes, you saw? And they would jeer and throw them at him and make fun of him. It's a carnival atmosphere. Despised by the people. Verse 7, all those who see me ridicule me. 
Some versions say, laugh me to scorn. Ha, ha, ha. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head. Ha, what a joke this guy is. Listen, he keeps calling and calling. What a, what a mess. What a farce. What a fraud. You know, I, I kind of wondered, you know, if maybe we're doing the wrong thing. Maybe we're, maybe we're condemning an innocent man. Maybe this, maybe that. But, but there he is on a cross. That proves he's forsaken of God. He's cursed of God. I feel better now. Ha, 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 ha. Can you imagine the emotional pain this is bringing to the Savior? To not only feel abandoned by his father, but to have his own people laugh him to scorn. They laugh. They say he trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Big joke. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. They mock him. But then in verse 9, Jesus begins to build a bridge. In the, completely in the darkness, if, if he cannot feel the closeness of the Father, then the Father reaching out to him, he will reach out to the Father. In utter darkness of soul, he does this. In verse 9, he starts thinking back. He's making, he's making an inventory here. He's fighting through his feelings that tell him he's a worm, he's nothing, he's a failure, and this is all a waste, and the Father has abandoned him. And just a sidebar here, his whole life, the devil dogged him, and later on, he tried to convince Christ, that he is that fallen angel. And now here he is, and the devil is wringing the heart of Christ, saying, see? Can you imagine? Do you feel it? Verse 9, but you are he who took me out of the womb. You made me trust while, I, while on my mother's breasts. I was cast upon you from birth from my mother's womb. You have been my God. He starts to, re, starts to think. I, I, you, you don't have to think very deeply. There's a, there was something very precarious about the birth of Christ, was there not? I mean, anybody here born in a barn? The smell of urine everywhere, flies landing on his face, fleas. This is not a good environment. The condition of his mother wasn't in perfect place either. Undoubtedly, his mother told him, God kept you alive as a baby. Verse 11, Be not far from me, for trouble is near. For there is none to help me. He's feeling utterly alone. Verse 12. Many bulls have surrounded me. These are not 
our sweet-tempered cows <laughs> that wander the fields here in Illinois. These are wild buffalo, ferocious, angry, temperamental beasts. I have friends who were missionaries and pastors in Africa, and they would tell stories about, you know, these, these creatures would attack, attack you just for fun and kill, kill you. They were ferocious. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They start to plan out an attack, you know. There's intimidation here. Intimidation, a, a psychological warfare going on here. Come down from the cross and we'll, what? Save yourself. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. The lions get closer later. Verse 14, I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. The poetry here, what's it trying to tell us? That great heart of his, no doubt, was breaking right there. So terrible is the burden that he just wants to go bonkers. He just wants to give in. He just wants, to, just wants it to go away. He's tempted to have what we would call a nervous breakdown. The deep anxiety and depression are weighing on him. And they offer him that sponge, you know, a vinegar, that narcotic. And the temptation to bite down hard on that and to, to just psychologically, mentally, emotionally disappear is strong. If you faced it yourself, he knows, he understands you. But he has work to do. He's got to keep his mind clear. He's got to hold on. Can you feel him? My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue clings to my jaws, and you have brought me to the dust of death. Not what you and I call death. Death is a sweet release from pain and suffering, right? But this, has, this is not what you and I call death. This is the real thing. What Revelation talks about, the second death, the absolute terror and, and, and destruction of the psyche. This is what's happening. And he says, you have brought me here. Do you feel him? For dogs have surrounded me. And, you know, I've got a couple sweet dogs. Anybody here? These are not your sweet dogs. These are the wild dogs of Africa. What makes the dogs unique, and there's a reason why this poetry is being used, this imagery is being used, this is how Christ is feeling. He's telling us, he's showing us what's going on inside him. And 
Hebrews says, when we willingly sin, we crucify him afresh. We make him feel this way all over again. That alone, to me, makes me hate sin. <laughs> Abhor it. The sin in me. These dogs, they would chase down their victim in packs. They'd go after, they'd go after, they'd go after, they'd wear them down. They'd just keep wearing them down. And that's, what, that's what's happening here. The forces of evil are trying to wear him down until the animal's heart explodes within it. And the dogs catch it and they eat it while it's still alive. That's the dogs that have surrounded him. The congregation of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare upon me. I don't think anybody has ever truly represented in any form of art or, or photography or cinema or whatever what it must, he must have looked like hanging there on the cross. They divide my garments among them and my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far from me. O my strength, hasten to help me. He's still pleading. He, he, he's getting nothing but crickets from heaven, but he keeps, keeps pleading. Have you ever done that? If you've ever been in that place, count it a blessing that you're able to comp at least get a taste of what it must have been like for Jesus. You're able to connect with him in ways that you never could have if all your prayers just, boy, you got this hotline from heaven, you get everything you ask for. You'd never come to know. You'd never come to know him. In this depth of intimacy. Deliver me, verse 20, from the sword, my precious from the power of the dog. This, and, and the King James adds a word in italics, life. The word is darling in the old King James. It's really a hard word to translate. But Jesus is not concerned about himself here. He's concerned about something bigger than himself. His messiahship, the salvation of the world, the salvation of you and your children. His concern is there. He's holding on for them, you see. And he's asking for strength to go through this. Deliver this from the dog, he prays, and from the horns of the wild oxen. And then he breaks through. He's in the depths of darkness. And, all, and then he recognizes, you have heard me. From the horns of the wild buffalo and from the dog, I know you've heard me. And then the rest of the psalm is a paean of praise. I will declare your name 
to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him. All fear and fear him, all you offspring of Israel. The overcomers, all you overcomers, praise him. For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. We've thought so long, t- oftentimes, right? Well, you know, uh, this is happening because I'm, I'm no good and, and uh, you know, he's, you know, God's kind of, you know, raising his eyebrow, you know. He has not abhorred us. He doesn't abhor you. The devil's telling you a lie. Psalm 102 talks about the Lord regards tenderly the afflicted. When you screw up, even when you do it on purpose, his heart has regard for you. He, he pities. Right? Amen? Nor has he hidden his face from him, but when he cried to him, he heard. I know you have heard me. I don't feel it. Everything around me says You're, you've abandoned me. I'm, I'm, I'm a worm. I'm nothing. But I know you've heard me. All by faith, he's done this. He's not been permitted to have even one moment of comfort as he hangs for those three hours in the darkness. My praise shall be of you in the great assembly. Even our little great assembly here today. There is something that brings this out where you see the depth of his sacrifice and you want to praise him. I will pay my vows before those who fear him. The poor shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the earth, even here, in our little gathering here in Downers Grove, shall remember and turn to the Lord. How, how is God going to pull this off? Do you ever wonder, you come to church week after week, you go to, maybe you go to prayer meeting, maybe, maybe you, maybe you read your Bible and you just see that still everything just keeps on going the way it is, you know. I'm just, I guess I am who I am and you're who you are and, and but maybe something, maybe there is a power out there. Maybe there is something that if we see it, produces what we only dream of. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's. He has won the battle. He has, he has crossed the dark seas to rescue the lost sheep. He rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust shall bow before him. Even he who cannot keep himself alive. There's a question asked in Lamentations, chapter 1, verse 12. 
Is there any sorrow such as mine? Can you just walk by? These folks stop walking by. What causes the change is an identity, a, a connection, a feeling for him that completely changes their motives, completely changes how they see other people, how they see him, how they see sin in their own lives. It changes what they value, changes what's important in their lives, what they see. And here we might meet them here in verse 30. A posterity shall serve him. It will be recounted to the Lord to that generation. Perhaps there's a clue to what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 24. This generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. Maybe that generation is on the earth now that will feel for him. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born. And then our English Bibles here have five words. Where in the Hebrew, there's only one. The Hebrew word is Asa. And Asa can be translated, it is finished. He bowed his head and he died. Amen.